I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Liz Goldwyn, writer, filmmaker, and artist-turned-sexuality guru, caught on to the importance of sex from an early age. She was stealing her father's Playboy magazines when she was just a little girl. It's that curious nature that led Goldwyn into a sort of Nancy Drew for sex, asking questions people are often afraid to ask. She's built a career deconstructing the taboos built around sexuality, not only the extreme and kinky corners of sex, but also how it shapes our day-to-day lives. As a filmmaker, Goldwyn's documentary Pretty Things, an adaptation of her own book, is an in-depth exploration of the golden age of burlesque. As an activist, her company, The Sex Ed, aims to fill America's void of comprehensive, accessible sex education by providing a platform with practical answers, real sex experts, and humor. In addition to The Sex Ed podcast, hosted by Goldwyn, she created Sexopedia, a total glossary of sex, health, and wellness terms that includes everything from Roe v. Wade to cream pie, LOL. Golden has lectured all over the country at museums and universities. She was the New York editor of French Vogue, and she became the first guest editor of Town & Country in its 168-year history. She has contributed to publications including the New York Times Magazine, the Financial Times, British Vogue, and Vanity Fair. Goldwyn has been commissioned as an artist and designer by MAC Cosmetics, Van Cleef & Arpels, Le Bon Marché, and Shiseido Cosmetics. Liz, welcome in my chair. Thank you for having me. I wish I was oh, in your chair to get I know. to get glamorous. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. It has I been can't a while. remember. I think it was we did a job together in New York when I was hosting a dinner at the Museum of Sex with Christopher Kane. Oh, exactly. How appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> do you do a lot of things like that? Well, I mean, since COVID, uh, no, right. but, but normally, you know, I'm on, I mean, pre COVID, I do a lot of speaking gigs, um, kind of my whole life because I've been in this space since I was 13 working at Planned Parenthood. So wow. I'm, pr- I'm pretty used to, um, being in front of a crowd and, and talking about taboo subjects. But so are you I, close- do, I do miss that. <laughs> Are you following the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade and all of that? Yeah, kind of I'm that? horrified actually. When you said Roe v. Wade, which is one of our sexpedia terms, I'm I'm really I'm really nervous about what's going on with um, access to reproductive rights in this country and and all around the world. Um, it's a uh, it's a scary time. I mean, I grew up with a really feminist mother who was on the board of Planned Parenthood, and I went to my first pro-choice rally when I was maybe nine years old. She used to take me to the Planned Parenthood clinics when I was, you know, really young, pre- preteen, awkward, very awkward preteen, um, who knew nothing about sex. Um, but I did know all about reproductive rights. Um, and we used to stand, uh, you know, with other people who are pro-choice and sort of form a human barricade so that people could come into the clinic in the midst of these crazy protests. And later when I worked in the clinic in Santa Monica and Los Angeles, um, you know, I was answering phones and uh, uh, initially, and there was be tons of, you know, bomb threats and threats against the doctors who are performing abortions, which is a small percentage of what Planned Parenthood actually does. So I feel like, you know, that sort of cause is in my blood, literally. 
Do you do you think your activism started at a young age then? Oh, it definitely started at a young age. Um, with both of my parents, my mom on the side of um, sexuality and sexual politics. And, um, you know, I was raised by both of them. We did community service really young. Um, and we got our allowance from recycling. So, you know, we, we were the kids that we were recycling before there was like recycling in California. So they instilled in us really early that because we were born into a situation with a lot of privilege that along with that came a lot of responsibility, um, to give back, to understand that if someone else is suffering, then we're suffering, uh, that it's all connected. So, so yeah, so I had the, I had the sort of political sexual activism from my mom. And then I had a dad who was, you know, whose Playboy magazines I stole. So it was (laughs) like two sides of the coin. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, so you grew up in LA and you're from a kind of uh, special family that's a part of the founding family of Hollywood in a way. Is that fair to say? It is. Yeah. My grandfather made the first movie in Hollywood in, um, I don't want to get the date wrong. I think it's 1916. might be 1914. Samuel Goldwyn. Samuel Goldwyn. Yeah. Sorry. I said gold. (laughs) Yeah. Samuel Goldwyn. And, um, you know, actually people think, so MGM was named after him. They actually stole his logo and took him to court to try to get him to stop using his own name. But he created that logo with the lion. If you look it up, yeah. if you Google it, um, that was originally Goldwyn Pictures because his first office in New York City was across the street from the New York Public Library, which has two stone lions guarding, guarding its entrance. Wow. So, so it was Goldwyn Pictures, and he made the first movie in Hollywood in, in 1914 or 1916 called The Squaw Man with his partner, Cecil B. DeMille, who was a big Hollywood director, you know, became a later became a big Hollywood director, and Jesse Lasky. Um, so they literally made the first picture in Hollywood, the first studio, studio picture. And, um, uh, you know, and later, like he founded the studio that Metro Pictures bought and became MGM. He founded, you know, like the lot that's now Fox. Um, so yeah, I grew up and, and my father was considered sort of the, the father of independent movies. This is premier max. Um, so he did like Sid and Nancy and my beautiful laundrette and wild at heart and, um, super size me and all those movies. And then I have three brothers that are in the movie business too. So I, I, I grew up surrounded by that. So you're the crown princess of LA. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> I hope not. I don't want, I try really hard to not be a princess. I'm kidding. So, but, but were you aware your family had this lineage growing up? Was that like a huge part of your life knowing that you came from kind of Hollywood royalty? Um, you know, it was something that other people would say about me and use that term royalty where I didn't feel that at all. Cause my parents worked really hard, especially my dad, to um, make sure we knew the value of a dollar. We never, you know, we didn't get car at 16. We didn't get, we didn't get that kind of stuff. He was really, my dad was an older father. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had me in his, in his mid fifties. So he was very old school um, about, and he really hated like the sort of spoiled Hollywood kid trope. Um, so he went really far the other direction to, to the point where you like, dad, we do need to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Not like that, but no, he made me do a, but I went to boarding school when I was 13 and he made me do a budget of like what I would be spending per year on everything from like 
menstrual products to socks to like everything. And when I made my first move, I mean, people always assumed like we, we had it so easy. My dad literally would close doors. Um, (laughs) The first movie I made pretty things that I sold to HBO. I raised all the money with grants. My father was so not helpful in any Anyway, because he was always, you know, had this thing of you got to make it on your own. You got to make it, make it on your own. He did not believe in nepotism. And I remember when I first showed it, I showed him the movie because I had a clip from one of my grandfather's pictures, Ball of Fire. Um, it's a Howard Hawks movie starring Barbara Stanwyck and Gary Cooper, written by Billy Wilder. And, um, and, and the Barbara plays this nightclub singer who was actually based on a burlesque queen that was one of the subjects of my book and film, Pretty Things. So I needed to get my dad's right, my dad to give me the right to clear, you know, to clear this archival footage. He was the only person of like hundreds of people that I had to clear footage from. Even David Bowie gave me the title track, Oh, You Pretty Things, for free. Didn't ask to see a cut of the film. My father insisted to see a cut. He watches it and he goes, oh, you made a real movie. (laughs) And then he says, you know what I'm going to do, kid? I'm only going to charge you $100. Oh, you still had to pay for publishing. I, I still had to pay. So, you know, he was, he was really, he was, was he, good. he was good about that. Was he penurious around the house? Like you guys, like, did he also apply to him and your mom or it was just with the kids? Um, really with the kids. I think he just had, was really afraid that we would be spoiled or that, you know, we would come off like, you know, he did, he was just didn't want us to be part of any of that. He really, He really, you know, he had a really unusual upbringing because he was the only son of, he had a half sister, but uh, she wasn't so much in the picture. So, you know, he grew up in in a really crazy world. My father knew like everybody you could think of that was an important uh, figure in the 20th century. And, you know, I have his childhood uh, photo albums are like crazy, you know, publicity stills, you know, uh, and it just wild, like he had wild experiences. So I think he was, I think he was really wanted to make sure that he tried to like normalize our childhood as much as possible and make sure that we knew that none of it was real. You know, the whole, like the, the whole Hollywood thing and fame and celebrity that wasn't real and it wasn't important and it wasn't what you aspire to. Um, you know, that it was just kind of like the stuff that came along with making movies, but not a byproduct of the work. Yeah, exactly. Uh So uh, gosh, I'm I'm like, I wonder what he would have thought of today with like social media and everything being the work it's kind of turned into like, at least arguably like half of your job these days as you know, someone in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, I think of him all the time. I think of him and I think of him and I think of me too. And I think of the conversations we'd be having around that, um, you know, as well. So it's, it's kind of, it's it's an interesting world, Hollywood. When you grow up in, in that kind of environment where like the, the bar has been set so high, you're like, I I don't know if I could start a studio, a movie studio from scratch, let's say. (laughs) Um, is that, are those hard shoes to fill? I mean, for many years, like, again, when you, when you say Hollywood royalty, it's not how I see myself. It's how other people see me. Okay. So when from growing up, I always had other people say, oh, you're going to be in the movie business. You're going to make movies. You know, it was kind of like an expectation. And I was the kid that went to art school and was kind of like the black sheep, rebellious, you know, 
troublemaker person who never was anti-authority, who never wanted to fit into the box you wanted to put me in. So actually for years, even while making my first film, I was like, I'm never going to make film. I'm not in Hollywood. I'm not going to make films. I was very determined to do things my, my own way because from an early age, I saw that the system was flawed and that the system, that as a woman, there was only so far I could ever get. You know, when I cut my first film, Pretty Things, I was lucky enough to be on the lot at Paramount. And I was the first female director there at the time in nine years. And yeah. And the other female directors that had been there, I heard men, many men refer to as bitches or dykes. And here I come and I'm making a movie that's about striptease. And I have a cutting room covered with images of you know, pinups and, and half naked women. And I'm wearing red lipstick and my 1950s dress, and they don't know what's a box to put me in, you know, because they're, they can't label me. And, and these are words that were bandied around all the time back then, bitch or dyke. You know, what's this- so funny before you go on is that the minute you said that I thought of the fashion industry, whether it's photographers or hair and makeup, it's bitches or dykes. I mean, I don't know now, but for a long time, it was like bitches or dykes. Yeah, which is basically saying that a woman who's empowered and independent and making her own way financially has to be labeled in one of those ways. Now, I think Me Too in the last five years have just basically made those words or that assumption inappropriate, but that doesn't mean that it's not still there underlying. Right. So, yeah, I, I mean, I always kind of felt like, you know, I grew up in a boys club. I have all these alpha men in my family. Um, I just didn't feel that that was, you know, I, I guess for a long time, I think my ideas of success were wrapped up in trying to prove something mm-hmm. to the men in my family or prove something to a system that ultimately I felt rejected by, you know, so with the sex ed, that was always, I, I bought the domain names in 2008 and that was always something very clear from very early on that was like, my sole mission in life, but I always looked at it as something that I would do in my sixties after I'd kind of proved myself. Wow! And, and then I had a real reckoning, um, in 2017 where I really thought about, I really thought about how I was valuing success and why it was so attached to, you know, even my own internalized patriarchy. And I thought, why am I waiting on this thing that like really fills me joy? I've, I had already written two books, uh, Pretty Things and Sporting Guide, which is about sex work in the 1890s or around sex. Um, so, you know, I was like, why am I, why am I trying to pursue this career in this other vein just to like fulfill some, you know, childish, I guess, need to be accepted? Mm. Could you mind sharing with us what happened in 2017? I had a freak accident in my garden, um, really crazy accident that uh, landed me in the hospital, having to get emergency surgery to save my right leg uh, within eight hours. Um, And so I had a permanent metal rod put in my right leg and four screws. And I spent a couple weeks in the hospital um, and then almost four months homebound uh, learning to walk again. So going from wheelchair to literally you forgot how to walk. Like not, I forgot how to walk. I mean, I, I had a massive accident. So you're, you're just teaching your new leg how to move basically. Yeah. I mean, I needed help to take a shower to, you know, go to the bathroom initially. It was really humbling. Who helped you with that? Well, first in the hospital, like, you know, 
nur- nurses. And right. then, like, luckily when I was home, I wasn't, I wasn't alone, but it was really, it was, it was part of it was like humiliating. And I, I've spent a lot of time around older people. My father was older and I was very close to him and, you know, with him as, as he, as he was, you know, dying and, uh, pretty things, my burlesque film and, and book, you know, the, my subjects were in their eighties. So I, I, oh, and I've always been like, love being around older people and hearing their stories. So, you know, I had been around a lot of older people towards the end of their life when they start to lose capacity to do things for themselves, whether that's drive or walk or eat or, you know, go to the bathroom. So I'd seen how frustrating and embarrassed and almost angry. Yeah. Angry that they would get. So I was kind of actually grateful to have that experience at a younger age like it really taught me a lot about vulnerability and, and receiving help and it refocused things. Cause all of a sudden my health was, was the only priority, you know, like I was so physically exhausted just trying to do a simple activity that, um, you know, it was like, oh God, I can't even function. I can't even move in the world until I can walk again. Were you depressed? Um, um was I depressed? I, I don't know if I was depressed. I think it was kind of like, I was really reflective. I mean, I was, I was scared at times. Like I really, even though I knew intellectually I'd walk again and the doctors told me that it was like, I couldn't, it took so long for my, for, to feel my, my, my leg and feel my feet and even move my toes that it was like, I was scared. I was scared that I wouldn't walk again. And I felt really I felt paralyzed by it. I would say more fear than depression. Um, and then, you know, it just gave me a lot of time to reflect on, on my life and how I was living it, which I think, you know, maybe a lot of other people have experienced too in the, in the pandemic, just kind of looking around and thinking like, what am I living for? What's a value to me? What are my values? Do my relationships reflect this? Like really what, what feels sacred to me? So actually I feel lucky and blessed to have had that experience because it also made me decide, fuck it. I'm gonna, this company and this project that I've been building for so long, because I'd written the business plan for a streaming, um, you know, sex positive company that included a sexpedia back in 2008 and had many people approached me over the years um, about it and they all said it's too sophisticated. It will never work. Nobody wants to talk about sex. So, you know, this all coincided with 2016. We have Trump in office. We have, you know, Weinstein and me too. And you suddenly have companies paying out huge sums of money in sexual harassment and sexual assault lawsuits. So there's a need, suddenly there's a cultural need to talk about these things, which I'd been doing my entire career and my entire career, people said to me, why do you care about dead strippers and sex workers? Um, and then all of a sudden they were like, wait, we want to talk about, <laughs> we want to talk about sex. I have to um, say, this sounds so obvious. I mean, I don't, I think sex affects every human being on the planet forever. You know, that it's like this thing that nobody wanted to touch or go near, but it's like, uh, excuse me. It's one of the things that everybody has a connection to. And it affects 
every part of our lives. Like the sex ed is about sex, health, and consciousness. So it's not sex as a, we don't look at sex as one necessarily a penetrative activity. Sex is your life force. It's your creative energy. It's, it's so tied up. It's, it's a whole, we look at sex holistically as attached to your wellness, as attached to your spirituality. How do you learn about sex? Do you learn about sex through your religious or cultural upbringing? Are you having sex? Are you looking at sex as something that's just beyond an act with another person? What about sex with yourself? Um, oh, I'm very <laughs> familiar with that. <laughs> Let me ask you something. How much do you think of our um, relationship with sex comes from our formative years and childhood? And then the second part is how much do you think comes from any if someone had trauma? Oh, a lot. Um, Light I'm questions writing, to start. <laughs> those are two. Those are two big ones. I, I'm writing a new book right now, and there's. I'm actually just finished the chapter on trauma. Um, so yeah, I think that well, we have ancestral trauma, which which we could do like three podcasts on mm-hmm. that we all carry within us in in different ways depending on on our upbringing and our family history. Um, we have a trauma that we've experienced. We have uh, trauma that we are experiencing day to day. We have trauma that we're consuming um, through the media, through the entertainment we watch, through social media, through even the way we treat ourselves. And then in terms of upbringing, our sexual and gender identities are pretty well formed by the time we're eight. And along with the way that we observe. Wait, you know, what do you mean by that? Sorry. I mean, by the time you're eight years old, you're pretty clear, even if you can't verbalize it, you're pretty clear whether you identify, how you identify, how, how you identify in terms of your gender and, and your sexual preferences. But they're pretty, see, they're pretty well developed by that time. But see, I think for me at the time I grew up, and then I think by the time you're eight, you're really also explicitly told that it's wrong to be gay. So it was like, I think in an ideal world, I would have known by then, but then it goes way deep in the, in the subconscious of, of who you are. Exactly. So the, those identities, they may not be conscious, but they're, okay. they're, they're unconscious and they're, they're part of you. Got it. But you have a lot, we have a lot of layers of deprogramming and deconditioning to do to get to the essence, the core of who we are and how we identify and who we love and how we love. Because from the time that we're very young, you know, like, let's say, uh, you know, a lot of things we learn through osmosis, um, just being in the womb, we're absorbing all the things that are going on, you know, or the trauma, the traumas that are going on in our, in the, in the bodies of the people who carry us. Um, but, you know, if you learn when you, when you're born and you're observing, you know, let's say how, um, to speak or how to eat when, when it comes to sex and body image, self-esteem, self-love, we're also observing how the adults of uh, around us behave when it comes to anything around those subjects. Mm. So we're absorbing a lot of internalized shame. We're absorbing a lot of, you know, none of the people who raised us had proper sex education or education around self-love, self-esteem and how that relates to sex. So, you know, from the time we're born, we're literally, we're literally coming into a system and a culture on the mass level and on the individual level that's, that's not supportive of you, Quinn, 
getting in touch of who you are as an individual and not supporting that. Like if it, when it comes to masturbation, you know, kids are often told, don't do that. Don't touch. Um, which is a totally natural thing for a kid to be discovering their body and like tugging on their penis or touching their vagina. You know, we're given names for genitalia that are, um, you know, wee wee instead of naming them. It's parents are uncomfortable. Adults are uncomfortable talking about this. So when we have questions, you know, we feel uncomfortable because we sense how uncomfortable they are. You spend any time with a kid, kids are so intuitive. They pick up on everything. You don't need to say something even explicitly for them to understand that there's something going on or that something is like um, not okay. Right. Especially if you don't want them to hear, I think their transmitters go off and go, wait, what? (laughs) I actually, so my mom's like a childhood educator, you know, uh, cooperative preschool, nursery school in Oakland. And I actually was allowed to ask questions. She told me when I was younger, I asked her in the car once, which I don't remember, how do two men have sex? Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, like the gay son, I was always more comfortable talking to my mom about sex than my dad. Mm hmm. So I I felt in some way really free as a young kid. And I was very sexual at a very, very young age. Like people are like, if I say that to her, surprised, but I I really was, but I'm saying very young. And then when you're gay, at least for me, it was like between the age of eight and 19, it was like nothing. You know, everybody else was experimenting and doing things. And I was like the asexual person. And it's not because... I really was that it's because of all the shit society puts on you and the shame about it. Right. And, you know, I get it. We get a lot of people um, with the sex ed writing us every single day, hundreds from all around the world that have some version of that story. And a lot of people saying, well, I'm a late bloomer. And I'm always wondering, what does that mean? Is there some age in our head that we think that we should be sexually active by? Um, is there, you know, we are on a constant evolution in our sexuality from the time we come onto this earth till we leave it. And it's so individual to us, like our fingerprint. Um, so I think there's a lot of, uh, I, I, we do, I do hear a lot of like, I should have, or I, this might not be normal or, do you, you know, when, when everyone else, we compare, you know, that, that saying compare and despair. A lot of our stuff around sex is comparing ourselves to how much sex or what kind of sex or how good the sex someone else is having. And everybody lies. Oh, yeah. So I have a question. I actually, a lot of my ideas about sex are antiquated, again, because of when I grew up in like the 90s. And um, whenever anybody was non-sexual and asexual, in my mind, they're always gay. Like, I don't believe in in being asexual because with all the repression, it was actually hard to see, right? So now I'm kind of maturing and trying to open up more and say, well, can someone be asexual and just not, you know, not want sex, but it's not coming from a place of of repressed sexuality? And B, if they are asexual, isn't that sad because it's such an enjoyable thing? Can it be cured? Well, cured, can, but can you imagine if someone that said that to you, can't being gay be cured, which they do say right. in conversion therapy and, and by the way, there, when I was growing up, I would have said, yes, please sign me up. <laughs> Not now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but okay. So when you said, 
So you're looking at it through your lens exactly. of your experience. Exactly. You know, so if you look at something through the lens of your experience, you're not leaving space for that other person and how they experience the world. And what the amazing and beautiful thing about sex is, you know, I think I was telling you offline the other day, there's a few hard no's when it comes to sex. And those include having sex with someone without their consent, which includes having sex with children, having sex with animals and having sex with dead people. Those are all, those are all, and this is a real thing is that these are things that happen and those things, those, those groups cannot give their consent. So those are hard no's, but outside of that, I've seen and heard everything. And, you know, it's not for me to judge that someone else may want to be pegged or be asexual or be, um, you know, have lots of casual sex or be going through a period of celibacy. We spend an awful lot of time judging other people's lifestyles yet. And we don't want to be judged. I don't want to be judged. And and I think all that judgment places, we internalize it and it places a lot of restrictions on really tapping into transcendent sex and the pleasure potential, because immediately we we look at something like, that's not for me. I would never do that. How do we know? You know, there's food. Like, I remember for years I had a thing where I, like, would not eat fish. I think I saw, like, a cartoon when I was a kid, and I realized they were animals, and I, I just couldn't eat fish. So for years I wouldn't eat fish, and then something broke through, and I started to eat fish. So I think of it like that. There may be things sexually even now that are, for me, are a hard no but I like to think that if it was the right circumstance, partner, age, right. whatever, that I might be open to it. Okay, let me ask you something. I try to look at other people like that because we've got people that follow us and that are active members of our community that have diaper, adult diaper fetish or, you know, there's really something for everybody. Yeah, I don't really judge that. Like you said, like I, there are things that those three things I think are a hard no but and this might be too heavy but i never had to learn any of those three things that you mentioned don't you think that those things are from either trauma or like learned perversion like it's not natural to want to do those types of sexual activities that they're almost not even about sex they're not they're about control and dominance and power but i don't think um you know psychopath behavior is natural or or violence or murder is natural, but human beings still do it. So, I mean, I think that's like a big, big question that I can't answer. I want to believe that humans are inherently good, but you know, we get shown every day that I guess we're not, you know, we're fighting against a lot of these. I mean, it's like the good versus evil battle, right? I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. It's very upsetting. Like I personally had to stop watching any, um, media content, like t- entertainment content with, with sexual violence or violence a few, few years ago, I just found myself becoming too sensitive to handle it. Is it, I, I have to consume so much of it in my work. And, um, you know, just because I've been in this space and on, in this space, like I said, from coming from, you know, working at Planned Parenthood, being a peer educator around AIDS, sexual assault, STDs, sexuality from an early age, I've constantly been in the position where people open up to me and, you know, ask me questions and tell me their traumas. And I'm, I'm so 
humbled by that. It's, I feel grateful that people trust me enough to do that. And I'm a vault and I'm non-judgmental, but it's, it definitely, it definitely takes a toll to just really see the, the struggles of, of, of people, the struggles that they keep quiet and the struggles that affect the way their ability to have intimate, romantic, sexual relationships with others and even themselves. So, you know, for me, I have to put limits around the additional stuff I consume, especially because of that, because it makes me very sad for humanity. Do you think no one's unscathed having issues about sex? Pretty much. Yeah. I think you're really lucky. I mean, I, I hope that there are some people on the planet and I think, you know, it's a constant, you know, just as we're evolving sexual, uh, sexually from, from birth to death, you know, we're also hopefully healing and learning, uh, you know, and growing as, as human beings and like looking at some of this stuff. I think the problem starts where you just are complacent and you just sort of accept, well, this is as good as it's going to get, or this is what society tells me I'm going to do, or this is what, you know, I grew up around, or, you know, I only saw this one modeling around sex. So I, I think, I guess I've always been someone who asks a lot of questions, you know, who's constantly questioning my existence and questioning everything around me. So, you know, I, I like to think that way. And it makes me sad when I, I we have so many people, whether they're in their teen, whether they're teenagers or they're, you know, in their fifties or sixties that want, that are, are struggling around this. And I, and I just feel like it's never too late to start this journey for yourself, to take control of the journey. It's never too late. Mm. Can I squeeze in here a fan question? Because you know, I put on Instagram that I was having you on and I got a bunch of fan questions. And because of the nature of this, we're keeping the the person anonymous, obviously. But um, we had one person write in and said, I've squirted a few times during sex, but I can never seem to do it myself. How can I? And is it pee? Okay, so it's not pee. Um, the v- vaginal ejaculate is a, is a fluid that's a little bit of a creamier consistency and that's released from the skein's glands, which might be called like the female prostate. And, um, you know, what you see in porn is, is not necessarily squirting, right? You see in porn like a, a liquid in... Um, being expelled from the bladder in large quantities. Um, So like prosthetics. (laughs) I don't know. I'd never watched straight porn. So I don't even know. Porn isn't real, right? We know porn's not real. It's entertainment. It's not real. Um, So don't get your sex ed from porn. Um, Although there are a lot of porn stars who do do offline off porn, um, sex education series like Jessica Drake has a whole series of videos um, for wicked uh, that are, that are sex ed based on masturbation and oral sex and anal everything. But is only um, fans real? That's real, right? Is only fans real? <laughs> when they're just like <laughs> looking in the camera and being like, look at me, you know, I don't, you know, yeah, none of it's real. Okay. Instagram is a lie. Everything we've got to question all of it. Right. We're all, right, it's, right, all right. Very, it's all very performative. Um, Okay. So squirting is something that some people, some people, you know, I know people who have never been able to control it and are super embarrassed because they've just done it naturally all their lives when they're having sex with someone and they feel ashamed. 
Um, now, I mean, I would say in the last 10 years, as it's become so popular with pornography, that there's like a, like a jealousy or a desire to do this because it's, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, if you release this much fluid, then it means you're having a better orgasm. That's not necessarily true. Right. Um, so it, it's not, if, if they, if this person has, ha- has been able to squirt during sex, then they're clearly capable of doing it. Um, there are a couple of people, Kenneth Play and Dr. Zana, who, uh, Fran Glo- Glova, um, who you can check out online, who actually have done a lot of research on squirting and um, hold some seminar classes that help you learn how to ejaculate. But if you can't do it, that's fine. You know, some people can have multiple orgasms. Some can't, we all like to be pleasured. Our body physiology is so different that again, this compare and despair, it's got to go out the window when it comes to sex. Yeah. And, and also a lot of people in the porn industry are on drugs, at least for gay porn, like the way that they're able to to have that much sex for that long and take that many loads. It's like, you know, they're not all sober. Let's just say there's some help. I mean, there's definitely ways to assist with erections and and maintaining them. Um, I don't like to generalize about about porn because I do have, you know, a lot of friends and colleagues that are in that space. And it's just like anything else. Like we could take Hollywood. I also find, I think coming from a Hollywood family, um, I find it very uh, hypocritical sometimes, even in Hollywood, when I hear people talk about porn and I'm like, are you kidding me? I fucking grew up in this town. I've seen some depraved shit. The stories that I could tell, and I'm not going to hear about some of the male actors or men who are still in power, who are terrible abusers. I mean, at least in the porn industry, there's a lot more systems in place for consent, boundaries, safe sex. Right. Um, so I never like to label like one industry as, you know, more messed up than another but yes but let's just say none of it's real it's all fake you know the other thing about porn is like when i was growing up you know i didn't have like the laptop in my room and didn't watch porn i really could say i didn't watch porn but you could so you had to use your mind's eye a lot more and like imagine imagine situations and things like that i think that the young people just don't know you know how to use their imagination anymore I think we're very disassociated from our bodies and, and our ourselves and that, um, you know, the rise of streaming porn has actually been directly li- linked to erectile dysfunction. Really? It has, yeah. Um, there's been lots of studies done and, um, you know, I think it just creates this sort of immediate gratification, fill the void, um, way of looking at sex, which is, which is sad. So I, I actually like to t- tell people that it's a good idea if you're relying on porn to get off. It's a really good idea to vary the what you're what you're using. So yeah, sometimes it's good. Don't look at the computer and use your imagination, or read some erotica, or listen to some erotica, or look at some look at a picture, look at a magazine. Um, use that spank bank memory of yours. Um, oh yeah. Because we that. get so desensitized to it and we just don't, we don't think of what we're, con- I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if I endless, endlessly scroll through Instagram, I get depressed. Right. And I, I have every, um, you know, possible 
skill and assistance for dealing like I know I'm aware I'm hyper aware that it's not real and everything but it's still you can't help it you can't help it when you get into that endless scrolling or the watching of porn it's just there's something very depressing about it it can also be a useful tool you know I know a lot of sex therapists who um, prescribe pornography often in their practice to individuals or couples who are coming into therapy as a way to open up conventionality in the, in the bedroom. Um, but you know, you just really need to, with all these things, keep a discerning eye. Yeah. And also there's a lot of like analytics, right. With porn. I think that's really interesting to see like, okay, so, you know, there are people who are out in Alabama, let's say it's like not the same percentage of population in New York, but then you could see through Pornhub that gay Pornhub, the numbers actually correlate to everywhere else in, you know, the world. Like it can be used in certain ways to find out information that people aren't willing to, t- to say out loud. Oh yeah. I think we did a podcast on um, uh, sex and AI uh, on the sex ed, which is, uh, which I'm talking a lot about like the analytics of things like our sexual, romantic, emotional consciousness data, I think is very valuable. Um, you know, Pornhub has a hundred million page views a day. Game of Thrones season finale, nine million. So if you want to talk <laughs> about the power of porn and the data that we that we can take from porn, it's huge. I mean, I, we have a lot we have a very clear privacy policy on our site sexed.com because I wanted to make sure people know we're not collecting your data. We're not, we don't have advertising. We're not selling your data to to advertisers and we will never do that. It's it's built into our terms of use and privacy policy that we created when we built the site. And I had to make that decision early on, you know, and and say, okay, well, you know, this is not going to be attractive to investors, but I believe in this because I think it's really, really dangerous. Um, you know, even if we think about the apps we use, like a lot of those of us who menstruate use apps to track our menstruation. And, and you know, it's turned out that some of the most popular apps have been funded by right-wing pro-lifers. Oh, my fact. God. So if we look at, um, you know, I don't use Facebook, never did, but, you know, Facebook has like, you know, in a relationship, not in a relationship, or you can identify or any of the dating apps, you can, you identify your sexual preferences. This is all information that's used to sell you things, to emotionally manipulate you. And um, yeah, I always thought about if the political candidates had advertised on Pornhub, um, you know, well, I'm sure Matt Gates has, but you know, <laughs> he's immune to anything. Also, if you just like, let's say you click on one thirst trap, like an Instagram hoe, and you're like, oh, wow, he's hot. The next thing you know, everything on your suggestion page, it'll get you in some trouble. Is like, it, they'll show you 9,000 other people who fit that algorithm. You know, it's not even necessarily what you want to see. You just wanted to peek. Yeah. I mean, Instagram is difficult. I mean, we use it, obviously we have a popular Instagram page, the sex ed, but um, you know, we also have been shadow banned plenty of times. It's taken a really long time to get verified, which we, we do have the blue check mark, which helps a little bit, but there's so many things that we can't, we're not allowed to advertise um, as a sex education company. 
Whereas there are other people that can advertise, you can advertise cannabis and you can advertise hymns can advertise for, you can advertise erectile dysfunction products. Wow. Um, yeah. It's a real double standard with these companies, because if you look at who's built all these companies, they're all built by pretty much straight white men. Um, so if you don't have diversity in how you're building companies that deal with things like intimacy, you're, you're fucked, I think. Um, and when it comes to sex and when it comes to how I'm building the sex ed, I think about that a lot because if I'm only coming at it from my experience, I'm leaving out most of the world. I remember early on, maybe two years ago, we were working on editorial content around orgasms, which is some of our most popular essays on the site are about orgasms. And we had a, a, a developer working with us at the time who was Southeast Indian. And she said we were in this meeting and she said, can you ask the expert who's writing it? How do you know if you've had an orgasm? So she's coming at it from a totally different perspective from me based on her cultural and religious upbringing. I never would have thought to ask that question. How do you know if you've had an orgasm? But when she asked that question, I realized, yeah, that's really important. There's going to be like millions of people all around the world that are have, coming from that same experience. So I think even when we look at like the products we use or we develop um, that that are trying to break us free of these old systems, we really need to think about about widening our perspective. Like you saying, well, I look at someone who's asexual and think that's sad. You know, so you know what I mean, right? Like it's so so important to have a lot of different voices and opinions coming well, only up. Only because I get so much personal pleasure from <laughs> sex. I'm project. I'm totally projecting onto them. You know. Um, I'm sad in other ways. Actually, we do, we have another fan question, and the question was, "What sex without orgasm?" So, I mean, as I said, I believe, and we believe with the sex ed that sex is not just an act that you do with another person. It doesn't even need sex. Doesn't need to be goal based. You can have sex with yourself. You can you can look at your sex. You can meditate on your sexual energy. You can use your sexual energy to manifest things you want to, you can use it to create things. You know, a lot of athletes are told not to have sex before a big game. Um, mm. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare famously and Mae West, the actress, playwright, um, producer, uh, they both refrain and Mae West was considered like a femme fatale, very sexual icon of the 20th century. They refrained from having sex when they were finishing a play or a sonnet because they were harnessing that energy. Is very powerful, our sex force. Yeah. Um, so, I, and I think a lot of people have an expectation that for sex to be good, it has to hit that, like, you know, G spot prostate pleasure every single time. That's, that's not true. I that's use just, sex as a reward, I think. Cause like when I was younger and had to like write a paper, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write to the end of this page and then I'll masturbate. Like putting it off, you know, like uh -huh. that'll be my reward for getting this work done. Do you think that's unhealthy? No, I don't think that's unhealthy. I think it's what works for you. I, I don't think, again, like labeling any of this is, is good or bad. It's just like more observing it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like with meditation or, you know, taking a moment to pause and observe why you're doing something, what your intentions are. I just think it's good to like look at sex as a more, um, as a broader, as a broader topic and, and really expand your consciousness around it and think like, you know, I teach 
sometimes when I, when I was doing a lot of public talks, I would teach people how to orgasm breathe as an icebreaker. At the beginning of the talk, I would have people really breathe deeply first into their genitals and notice how are your genitals feeling right now? Are they sticky? Are Wait, they- you like you're breathing on them physically or you're breathing? No, with I'm the saying intention. you take a deep breath. So if I asked you to take a deep breath, mm-hmm. like right now, like, and I would say, maybe I would say, breathe into your stomach. Okay. And notice how your stomach feels. Are you hungry? Is it making noises? Does it feel empty? Do you feel bloated? Do you feel full? So it's kind of, it's putting that attention. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you do yoga, for example, you may have been to a yoga class where they, they might tell you, you know, to put attention into your, into your belly or put attention into your arms. So it's putting that attention into your genitals, literally. And most people don't do that. They don't walk around or they don't stop during the day and think, how does my vagina feel? How does my penis feel? How do my balls feel? How does my asshole feel? <laughs> you know, I do. Of- <laughs> get anything done because that's all I'm thinking about but but here I'm not saying necessarily thinking about it in relationship to like is it hard are you getting right, 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 but right. like like the minutia of how it feels right the minutia of it like in that moment like what is it you know are you itchy it's it's literally just like stopping to observe things like that and taking your mindset out of sex has to be the end, like the end of sex has to include an orgasm or else it was a disappointment and else I failed or my partner failed. So I've been trying uh, to ask you because you are so, I'm going to just say, in my opinion, you're very evolved sex in terms <laughs> of sex. You're well-read, you're whatever. Is that ever an issue for you if you're in a relationship that it would seem to me quite intimidating to have sex even with you if, if I'm like, oh my God, she knows everything. I don't know everything. Anyone who tells you they know everything or anyone who passes themselves off as a guru is full of fucking shit. Yeah. Because we're all gurus. We all are. We all know what's best for us. We just need to tap into that. You know, we spend so much time and energy and money expecting, and I'm guilty of it too, wanting someone else to tell us how to make our lives better, how to have better sex, how to be more attractive, how to be more fulfilled, more happy, more joyful. We really do have all these answers inside of ourselves. So in terms of someone feeling intimidated, I mean, I hope not. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I think that, you know, I've definitely had, you know, partners where I felt there's things that I want to talk about. And I I think I'm always willing to like work through things and, you know, work on them together. And I've had partners who were just not there, you know, like I had one person I was super in love with and, and the sex was great, but asking him to show me how he liked to masturbate or how to masturbate filled him with shame because he had a Catholic, um, you know, school upbringing, like Mexican Catholic upbringing. And that was really hard for him. Um, and what about me, non-verbally, just just kind of making sounds when it when it's something he likes. No, I mean I asked him to show. I, I think that's a really it. good okay. exercise, actually, to ask someone to show you how they like to be touched, right? Okay. Because okay. It, it just helps you understand how to touch them and what they like. But that thing that for him was really uncomfortable, you know. Whereas the the sex itself was was great. I was very happy, no complaints, but. You know, there's certain things that we just have so much shame around that are st- that are such old childhood wounds that can be really difficult to get past. So I don't necessarily think of myself as evolved. I mean, I'll, I'll take the compliment, 
Um, I just think of myself as like curious and committed to wanting to be on this journey of like, I want to have crazy, amazing, freaky sex in my seventies. You know, I don't want to have peaked and I definitely didn't in my twenties. You know, I was married for 13 years. I was with someone for 13 years. So my entire twenties, when most people are experimenting, I was monogamous. Right. Um, so you know, I, I, I get, I also get that a lot that people think, you know, that there's some certain point in your life where you're supposed to be having the best sex. And a lot of people think that's in their teens or twenties bullshit. Cause you don't know your body. You don't know your boundaries. You don't necessarily know how to communicate around the things that you like and you don't like, and you're still deep in the program in the, you haven't gotten deprogrammed yet unless you're, you know, been working on it. Right. So yeah, I think it's like really exciting to look at look at sex as something that like it's like discovering a whole new flavor profile. <laughs> and have you ever had someone say to you like, "Oh, I, can you do brunch on Saturday?" And you're like, "I'm sorry, I'm going to the um, porn awards." You know, <laughs> like in a relationship, <laughs> like it just must seem like when you're with someone, it's not you're not the typical you know girlfriend. I mean, I've had people have been you know my. I, I wrote my first book and made my first film and was writing my second book when I was married. So, you know, I, I've always, I think people are pretty comfortable with what I do. And I, I, I think I told you that I, I did take a boyfriend to the AVN awards and he was really, uh, really upset by it. And he AVN like, is what? AVN is the adult video network and it's sort of the biggest convention and awards show. It's the Oscars of porn and the convention, which is happened simultaneously with CES, which is um, consumer electronics in Vegas. Of course. It's a great amalgamation of everything. But the, the porn kind of came first actually. And a lot of the developments in tech VR and war happen within porn so you'd be surprised by how many people in luxury and internationally will contact me and say, can you put me in touch with who you think is developed is, is sort of at the forefront of VR and porn, because I want to do a project that has nothing to do with porn. They just want that technology. So AVN essentially um, was developed the guy, I know the guy, I know the guy, Paul Fishbein that founded it. Um, and we have a great episode. If you're interested in the history of porn and all this stuff, uh, we have an episode with him. His name's Paul Fishbein on, on the sex ed podcast. Um, but I took, so it's like a trade show, which is not sexy at all. You trade know, shows are to- scary in any industry, by the way. I mean, yeah. go to a makeup trade show and I'm, you see more frightening things, I'm sure, than at the porn trade show. And it's cold. They're in these big convention centers and the air conditioning is way up and the lighting is really bad. Um, the difference is you have some of your favorite porn stars will appear and like sign autographs and stuff. And is it um, open to the public? Um, I don't know. I th- I'm the, yes, I think the public can buy tickets. So there are like when I went, it's been a while. The last time I went was in 2013 to the AVN uh, convention and awards. And I actually went, I was in Vegas for Chanel. Chanel had flown me um, and my boyfriend to go to a party. They were opening like a store at Wynn or something in Vegas. And it was a super fancy, like amazing, you know, really fun Chanel event. Very, very, 
you know, very highbrow. And of course it was also the AVN award. So I wanted to go and I, I, <laughs> you could not have gotten two more different experiences. And I, <laughs> I think I was telling you that I went and I had like my vintage sixties, poochie long sleeve dress on and a cardigan and glasses and tights and like Chanel flats could not have way too in. chic for the porn. Uh, well, really covered up. The only thing, <laughs> only skin I was showing was my hands and my face. That's it. And, you know, I'm all up in there talking to all the stock porn stars who I'm familiar with from doing this work for a long time. And like, I love your red carpet style. And, blah, blah, blah. and he's just like, like, what's your top selling dildo? Who's the market for this? And, you know, because I love data and analytics. Like I want to know this stuff. This is my work. Um, and he was just so upset by it. He didn't watch porn at all. I mean, I don't watch porn personally at all. And I don't because I, I have to look at it for work. It's not something that I find appealing personally. Um, but, you know, he just, I think it, it was really hard for him to wrap it himself around the idea that this is an industry, that it's work, that it's not um, necessarily sexy. And, but, and I've had other boyfriends and partners that have just been really interested and fascinated and can clearly see for me that it's like a, it's a something I'm studying and something I'm interested in. And they'll, they're super supportive. Um, you know, I think at this point where I'm at right now, I want the combination of someone who can, um, you know, for example, understand that menstrual blood is actually a very powerful tool for sex magic and could maybe be someone that would I could take to see my friend Bethany Vernon in Paris in her dungeon when I'm 70, but also wants to listen to my feelings. <laughs> And talk to me and, and also wants to orgasm, breathe and do Kundalini yoga and have tantric sex. So that, that, that requires someone who's doing a lot of self work. So I'm not quite sure that yeah, that person I has mean, materialized yet, but that that's the goal. Do I need to circle back here on the period blood magic <laughs> or are we going to let that lie? <laughs> let's let's do that let's save that for okay two. yeah that's gonna, we're gonna let that one lie i mean you literally were speaking greek to me just now with all of that stuff <laughs> you know i like to throw in i know we're coming up at the end of our of our conversation yeah. so i like to throw in a little like ooh, yeah. i want more here's one question that i always ask every guest and um i'm gonna ask you if you could go back in time and meet yourself somewhere where would it be? And what would you say to yourself? Gosh, um, well, I don't believe in regrets as a life philosophy, because I do feel that every difficult experience I've had has been a great lesson in some way and has allowed me to really change my life. Um, but I think I would probably go back to myself as a teenager, like 13, and just say, well, it's going to get better. And I would tell myself to love myself. Um, I would encourage myself to love my body. Mm. I would, you know, really try to say that same thing I said to you that like, we all have the guru and the power within us. I would really probably go back to those like early awkward adolescent age and like give myself a big hug. Do you have time for a quick game? Sure. Okay, let's play Sexual Jeopardy. I'm going <laughs> to ask you okay. a question and you have to answer it in a question. 
This is sexual jeopardy. <laughs> this, this is the practice of minimizing. Oh, by the way, this is sexual jeopardy, and most of these are actual terms on Sexopedia, which is on your website, which I am obsessed with. And then you'll see the sillier ones are just from the internet. Um, this is the practice of minimizing the presence of one's breasts, usually with the objective of reducing one's resonance with others as conventionally female. What is binding? Yes, got that one. This term, the namesake of a 1996 Backstreet single and 1997 Jamie Foxx-fronted film, refers to an instance of telecommunication that is initiated solely for sexual, as opposed to long-term romantic, purposes. What is a booty call? Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) I hope you ask me about strobe light honeys. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh wait yes that was on there by the way okay so what is what is uh this was a this was a popular rap song by who was it the black sheep black sheep yeah and i had that yeah. song and never realized what the hell he was talking about yeah a strobe light honey can also uh, what is a strobe light honey or what are beer goggles <laughs> <laughs> It definitely shows my 90s upbringing of some of these terms, but um, and my deep, deep love of hip hop. But yeah. it's true. It's true because sometimes, you know, people look attractive when we're under the influence. Yeah. That, well, yeah, that's true. Wait till the lights come up at the cock at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> that's a bar in New York. This slang term originated within the black male community. I didn't know that part of it. And is an intentional feminization of the anus, like linking it to the vagina or pussy for purposes of sexual allure. What is bussy? Yes, got that one. And then I there is also mussy. Um, let me move down the list here. This is a word for someone who exaggerates their sexual exploits. Oh, what is that one? Eh, eh, Pornokia. Pornokia. Yeah. Um, This is the act when you choose following a breakup to drive out the memory of your former partner by quickly having sex with someone else. This is known as a. I'll probably use a different term. (laughs) Getting under someone to getting over them. (laughs) Um, I don't know what that one. I mean, I don't, I don't remember which one that is in our sexpedia. This was from, this was from like, uh, you know, the, the dirty underbelly of the internet. Sexorcism. That's called a sexorcism. Oh, sexorcism. This isn't from our sexpedia. No, that's not from your sexpedia. Yeah. I have a lot of strong feelings about that though, actually. Tell me. Um, You know, we have a whole episode on celibacy uh, on our podcast because I, I actually think that, I mean, maybe it works for some people. For me, it never has. And for a lot of other people, I just think it's not, it's not the the literal psychic consequence of having sex of an orgasm and having sex with someone else can take a year to clear. So this whole idea of sexorcism, yeah, maybe it like, maybe it can help you get over the hump. Sure. But um, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know about that getting under someone to get over someone or getting into someone to get over someone. Maybe it works, but. I think it's just like, you probably wanted to have sex with someone else because you you didn't before. Maybe you didn't before. And it's like, well, at least I can do that. That's going to help me not be sad from a breakup. 
Yeah, I mean, um, listen, I I definitely needed to experiment actually after being married for 13 years. Okay, this is the final Jeopardy question. This practice centers around the subjugation of one sexual partner by another sexual activity with a third party. Bringing in a Cuckold. third person. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. What is, cuckold? what is cuckolding? Yeah, I didn't know that one, actually. Um, and well, if I- you, you want to learn any of these terms, go to thesexed.com and Sexpedia is in our drop-down menu. So, so what is – now let's see if you know your acronyms. BLS. What is BLS? Ball licking know. and sucking. Ball licking and sucking. Okay. okay. DDF. DDF. Oh, no. Drug and disease free. Oh, yes, I do know that. And finally, this is a, a porn scene that is, is all girls, no men. Known as a veggie scene, no meat. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, why can't the vagina be meat? Why can't the vagina be the, the turkey or the ham? You know sandwich? what? It's all meat. It's all <laughs> meat. Um, Liz, unless, unless you're vegan. Yeah. There's there's something for everybody out there. Liz, um, this was like the fastest hour that's ever gone by. I could I could talk to you forever. Um, I want everybody to check out your podcast because it's amazing. And it actually goes um, – because it's all about sex. You can go in deeper on topics. And it's uh, really fun to listen to all the experts that you have on. And um, I really hope that actually I get you in my real chair soon and we can catch up. I would love that. I would love that. And round two, we go into – the power of menstrual blood. Yes. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have a guest host that day, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Thank Take you, care. too. Bye. Bye.